This week's episode of Millions of Screens is brought to you by the HBO original series, The Undoing, for your awards consideration. Nominated for four Golden Globe Awards, including Best TV Limited Series, starring powerhouse actors Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, both nominated for their leading roles at the Golden Globes and SAG Awards, and Donald Sutherland, Golden Globe nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series, The Undoing, now streaming on HBO Max. This is a millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're talking the superb owl and everything that went along with it. And then we're gonna take a quick diversion into CBS procedural crime dramas uh, with some spoiler-free conversation about Clarice. How does that sound to everyone? That's fine. <laughs> Sounds like something <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> Right. It's, it depends on what you mean by the question. Like, it sounded perfect. That's exactly what yeah. we planned on. You laid it out clearly. Uh, does Definitely it sound good? Like something we should be excited about? Absolutely. Because talking TV with you folk is uh, always a thrill. Well, guys, last week we didn't have any clicker because we had to talk about awards nominations. This week, kind of a super clicker episode. And we're starting by talking about the Super Bowl. I almost said Super Bowl again. Got to get fine. it out of my brain. No, uh, it works. No. So this Sunday's contest between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers attracted the fewest viewers since 2007 when Ben, your Chicago Bears, lost to the Indianapolis Colts. I know, and Libby, I know, I understand. I always give, I always throw the Bears fandom on Ben. No, that's okay. I, uh, I went to bed at halftime. Because I was so upset. Which one? The, the Bears Colts or this? Bears this, Colts. Oh. Bears Colts. Uh, halfway through third quarter of this year's, I I just went to the other room and started watching something else because it was yeah. just. So before I get your the opinion Bears on Super Bowl, though, like come on, it starts with Devin Hester <laughs> returning it, and then Rex After put him up fourteen season. to three. It was like, ah, oh, sick. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So before I get your thoughts on on the ratings and, and how this all broke down, uh, there there was, I guess, uh, a comment from CBS that even though the overall viewership totals were a disappointment, uh, they touted their internet streaming and said that the stream averaged 5.7 million viewers per minute on CBS All Access. Well, did they also mention in that uh, little information nugget that CBS All Access broke? when oh. people were trying to watch the Super Bowl. That didn't, they like did it, not mention that. It crashed because too many people were trying to use it, which is never a good sign, uh, even though I guess you know it's getting an update soon. <laughs> we're getting uh, there. Don't jump ahead. What, what do you make of this, of this ratings total? Obviously, the game wasn't really exciting, despite Patrick Mahomes' best efforts to try, to try to push the game in a more exciting fashion, but I guess his receivers just didn't get the memo. What do you what do you take from these these ratings numbers in terms of being the lowest since two thousand seven? I don't I don't I don't take a lot from this honestly. I'm I'm of the mindset that uh, it's not really the game itself that drives a ton of traffic. Like the idea that you know Tom Brady is going up against Patrick Mahomes is is exciting to football fans, but football fans are going to watch anyway. So like you're just trying to get those those peripheral viewers. And it's just, it's harder than ever. These days, 
you know, if it's a good game, people will tune in. But all the commercials are online, so they don't feel like they're missing out that way. And, uh, you know, if they're not football fans at all, then there's nothing you can really do to lure them in. The idea that they still got 95 million people to watch that broadcast, which is unbelievably long, it's just amazing to me. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure that the NFL is panicking and trying to come up with ways to, uh, you know, increase outreach and expand the fan base. But really, to me, this is more a sign of the times that all live viewing is ticking downward. It's just harder to get people to commit to something on a, a timetable that's not their own. So uh, did, did it hurt that the game wasn't great? Sure. Uh, like that it wasn't a close game, yeah. But I don't think that would necessarily explain a, a 5 million viewer difference, so. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that you can blame that on. I, I mean, obviously the pandemic is what we blame everything on. Uh, you know, there are a lot fewer, God hoping, there's a lot fewer parties. But also, like like Ben said with live events, it's people just don't, I didn't watch the whole Super Bowl this year. I didn't care about any of the commercials, like, and yeah, I'm getting old, but I I just don't feel this intense need to watch these um, sort of event, annual events, as much as I used to. Um, and I'm wondering, honestly, I think we I think we can all agree that the Oscars numbers will definitely be down this year, but I think. It, you know, I think all of this, I think streaming, I think the pandemic, I think it's all going to, to killing these events even faster than they were dying anyway. And I'm not sure what or if there's a solution to that. I would be interested, like everybody, it felt like a lot of people leading up to the Super Bowl were talking about the fact that it was a pandemic and using the same argument that we've seen before where it's like, oh, everybody's locked inside. People are going to tune in. It's going to be big numbers. We're going to have a huge rating. And it's like, that, that's not the lesson of the pandemic. The lesson of the pandemic has been that people are watching more, but they're even more affixed to their own wants and desires. They want to decide what they need in every single moment of the day. And you can't really dictate that to them. And we again, we'd seen that in other live events, as you mentioned, Libby, so, like, the idea that that was going to be some sort of boon to the Super Bowl is crazy. So, like, what I'd like to know is uh, it's not, you know, are the ratings up or down from the Super Bowl. It's, like, how many people were watching TV on Sunday? Like, I feel like with 95 million people watching the Super Bowl, there were still way more people glued to their screens this Sunday than on a typical day. And that in itself is should be a win. And, frankly, when you're getting 95 million people to watch anything live at this point in the world, again, like, that's... Just be happy. Like, just take it. Like, right. you're good. Keep riding that thing out. You've got at least another decade before those numbers would create <laughs> any sort of troubling number. I will say a point A point that you brought up, Libby, and I think it's also, it, it ties into what Ben was talking about, is that I think the, view, the viewing habits of everyone are just slowly changing. It's almost like politics in a way. Like, yes, our country's becoming more progressive because the hope is that these antiquated uh, ideas of what the country should be are slowly sort of dying out, rotting away. And I think television viewing is going the same way where we've been given this ecosystem of Netflix, YouTube, where you can essentially choose what you want to watch when you watch it. And there's a whole generation coming up behind our generation that is just used to instantaneous gratification about what they want to watch. And you can watch the highlights from the Super Bowl after the Super Bowl or the next day. Uh, you can watch the Michael B. Jordan Alexa commercial 
whenever you want on YouTube. Arguably, maybe the, the best commercial of the night. I don't know. But for, yeah, for, uh, I, I don't, I pulled this up. It's been viewed 77 million times on YouTube. So the Michael B. Jordan commercial almost has as many viewers as, those are mine. <laughs> as, as watch the Super Bowl itself. I think like that's telling like that, that is extremely telling. Granted, some of that is probably, you know, it's running as pre-roll ads on things, but like that's still a lot of views that are probably just generated from, oh, I, I, I have this page that says what the five best commercials of the, of the night were. I'm just going to look at those five ads. Everything is broken down and sold piecemeal now, so there's really no, no need to sit down and, and watch the whole thing, which is what I thought about a lot when I was watching Clarice. But um, Don't get ahead of us! One of the things <laughs> that I was talking about, though, when I was watching the game was kind of the changes that they always make to the broadcast itself. And like we talked before about how kind of the, the Nickelodeonization of, of football games can be really fun. And that would, like, I absolutely would have watched on Nickelodeon if they had had that as an option instead of just kind of bonus uh, footage interwoven to promote it later on. Um, and it's great to do, to take those kind of big swings. And it's great to um, expand the framing of the game beyond two like one former football player and one professional sports commentator like let other people talk about it and if that's how people want to absorb the game you know it's all for the better but I, I really don't think there's anything that like cbs did wrong in promoting the game or, or covering the game um i have a lot of questions over the uh the cameras that they choose to use with the very shallow, like this year in particular, they've switched over to those low depth of field yeah. cameras. Yeah, then... have, have you read anything about that? What's, no, what's, what's I, the word I've on that? I've been meaning to try to look it up. I don't know, but like they have to be set to autofocus, right? Like because they go in and out so yeah. much and like the cameraman would never do that. Like it's not their fault. Yeah, they're, the, they're not, the they're not manually focusing. Those are cameras that are, that are essentially set to autofocus on whatever center of frame or whatever is most prominent mm-hmm. in frame. And I, when I, when I saw that, I was like, interesting, kind of cool. But my thinking is, and this might be wrong, that that is being dictated by the way that Madden looks in video games. Oh, that's interesting. Because if you look at the way that some of the graphics packages in, in Madden work, usually they do it so they hide. It's done so that you hide the, the, the fans. So they'll get close-ups because you don't want a bunch of digital fans in your, in your video game that look fake. And the idea is like you have cameras that are close to the player in, in question and everything else sort of falls very quickly out of, out of focus behind them. Um, and to me, when I first saw it, I'm like, shit, this looks like a video game. And I wonder if that's part of what they're trying to do is essentially for a, maybe for a younger generation who only interacts with football via Madden. Well, You're trying to mimic the way the season when exactly. there's no fans. Exactly. Yeah. Trying to get away but, from that baseball problem where, you know, it's all standees. and. So my, my galaxy brain thinking on this was, was more that they were trying to create heroes for the game, that they were trying to engender themselves to like a younger demographic by giving them that Michael Bay style hero shot. Because most of the time when I first noticed that camera like being utilized was when they scored a touchdown was after a touchdown and people were celebrating or they were, you know, showing them celebrating with their with their teammates and they were trying to like single out that player. They were trying to like say, look at this guy, look at what he just did, like 
and and positioning him in a way where he's the only one there. Like it, it's just such a we're going to build characters, we're going to build people, we're going to sell those characters, we're going to make it Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. And I was like, I think that mentality is fine. I just think again, you've got to get your you've got to get better equipment and or people to operate that equipment properly for them to not go out of focus half the time and ruin the effect. Um, but anyway, this is this is a long way of me just saying that I, I don't think this is a CVS problem. This is if there's a problem at all, it's an NFL problem. Like you guys have horrible PR. You are there is a generation of children who will never play your game because they know it will kill, kill them, them eventually. Um, and until you make serious attempts to address those issues within the game itself, then that's going to persist. So you have to figure that out. After some quick digging, my my thoughts are right. It is called, or I don't know if it's officially called, it's Madden Vision. It's it's literally, they're using, so they're using... uh, We are not utilizing his talents properly, because I would read the shit out of something about that. They're they're utilizing utilizing Sony A7R4s, which are like small handheld mirrorless cameras that essentially do autofocus, and they're doing it for these shallow depth of field shots uh, that essentially allow you to feel like you're closer to the players. But I think it's trying to mimic the way the video games look. Yeah, I mean, again, if it's just for the season, that's fine, and it was an interesting experiment. If it's a long term strategy, they just need to they need to fix their problems. Be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they need to probably steer away from the autofocus. Trust your professional cameraman to know how to focus on a single person and let them do it. Speaking of uh, the relentless march of time, one of the ads that aired during the Super Bowl is actually a series of ads was for what CBS All Access will become Paramount Plus. And the relentless march goes both ways. One in that everything is moving towards some uh, name and the and the plus symbol, but also it featured many of the characters from across the Viacom universe traipsing arduously up Paramount. Paramount Mountain. <laughs> the, the, the titular Paramount to be greeted at the very top by Patrick Stewart and Stephen Colbert. You had, uh, what was it, Survivors, uh, Jeff Probst. You had Beavis and Butthead. Uh, You had Blue Blood's own (laughs) Tom Selleck. Uh, I have no idea what his character name is. Good fight and wife. Yep, Christine Bransky. Diane Lockhart, yeah. Uh, Some golfers (laughs) for people who who like golf yeah he golfed that frozen guy puppet <laughs> if anything arm. it was it was more a case for like they have more ip than this right that was sort of that was sort of my takeaway where's all the recognizable ip yeah um you know boys it, it really took me back to last year when uh the super bowls uh there was a series of commercials last Super Bowl. There was for a for a streaming sort of service um, that did not make it to this year's Super Bowl. Oh no! Uh, yeah, <laughs> that it, yeah. So Paramount Plus had a very quibby type feel to it. Obviously, they uh, Paramount has a lot more um, intellectual property than Quibi did, um, give or take a punked. But um, 
I don't know. Like, it's... I still can't believe that this is the name they landed on. I... It was just strange. Although I will say, it was very interesting to see that I will laugh just as hard and long <laughs> at Beavis and Butthead than, that I, than I always have. And um, I guess this is aging. But no, but I, it, like I don't, I don't, I don't know what the strategy there was because I still don't, I, I don't know if it worked. Yeah, it was confu- the, It was confusing to me just like the Beavis and Bud thing popped up. I was like, oh, I would definitely watch like old Beavis and Bud. And then there was almost so much other IP seeping in that I was like, what is this? What is I don't this? Like it. What is this? I don't know what any of this stuff is. I don't know if I need this thing anymore. I would have just got if they said Beavis and Bud, I'd be like, I'm getting this thing to watch Beavis and Butthead. What's, what's interesting about these kind of rollouts to me is is that, you know, Disney Plus has to be the model of success in terms of rolling it out. And, you know, right. you can give all the credit you want, uh, and deservedly so, to the fact that they have the library and that they have created brands within their brand that are very well recognized. There's Pixar, there's Marvel, like people know what those are and they're like, okay, that's on Disney Plus. But their advertising campaign was so simple. It was just Disney Plus, big, right here, we've got these things, Marvel. Pixar, The Simpsons. Star Wars. Like they, Simpsons. Yep. Yeah, Star Wars. Like, made it very, very clear. And as much as we've defended HBO and HBO Max and WarnerMedia, um, and as much as I still think that service is great, and I still think the launch was fine for the most part. Not as bad as everyone says. I st- I right, st- that's probably the best. I mean, I'm the Rube here, but I truly don't understand why there's still backlash against it. Truly don't right. understand. And again, but like... Roku. But the, the general impression is that that was a, was a problematic launch. And, you know, a lot of the blame gets placed on the fact that they were just bouncing titles around forever. Like there was too many, there was too many HBOs. And nobody knew what Max meant. Um, but their rollout was very much still branded in the same sense of Disney, but more in the, like, we're going to throw all the IP at you and you're just going to be like, holy shit, there's so much here. And it was like, oh my god, that's Batman and Wonder Woman. So I guess DC is going to be here, and that's good. But that's Friends, and then The Sopranos, and then, like on there was South just Park. so much on yeah, on South Park. Like there's stuff on every poster, Rick and Morty. Like all of the things were just pouring out on on you know billboards around town or the advertising that went out or whatever it was, and you were just overwhelmed because look at all this IP. And instead of following Disney Plus's lead and trying to build little seg like little segments and saying this is what we have. Uh, they seem to follow the HBO Max model, but with way less notable IP. Like, yep. there was an ad for Star Trek. There was an ad for, like, Star, all of Star Trek is going to be on Paramount+. Plus. Look at that. That's so exciting. But that's one little bubble. And then they needed, like, Comedy Central or... MTV. <laughs> MTV. Or even fucking, like, they have the Yellowstone prequel coming out. Even if they just wanted to put, like, Yellowstone in big letters, like, that would have been something else. But it was it's just number so... one show on TV every week. I get that email, right? And it, but it, there was just so little climbing the mountain, so to speak. There was so little associated with Paramount Plus, and so much of it was already associated with CBS All Access, where it was like, "Those are the Star Trek characters. That's the Good Wife. Like this is already on CBS All Access. Why do I care about the new thing?" That that was that was what made it to me such a baffling launch. And like when Beavis and Bedhead walked in, I was like, "You guys are carrying way more weight than you." could possibly do like they needed to be like that needed to be uh the mandalorian walking onto the screen or something for people to be like oh holy shit this is a game changer i gotta get paramount plus and i love beavis but i do i can't wait to revisit uh <laughs> all of the beavis button episodes oh, yeah. that will make me feel like an idiot all over again um 
But I just, I was baffled by this being their biggest opportunity to advertise what their thing was and them deciding that one, the Paramount Mountain was iconic enough to base a campaign around and two, to be silly enough not to fill the mountain. Like, like, like there were more people in Lord of the Rings walking across mountains than there were on that Paramount Mountain. Like, I just, anyway, the fellowship, I, anyway. It wasn't great. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think that it established in the, in the, in the commercials that I saw, I don't, I don't think it established that it was replacing CBS All Access. I don't think that it, uh, right. I don't think it did a good job selling what it is, what its library is. I, um, yeah, it was just a, it was just a real misfire along the lines of what I expected it to be when they said it was going to be called Paramount Plus. Like when you land on Paramount Plus, it's like, okay, something you're not, something is not calibrated correctly because that is not a great name to go with. They have the plus. Why didn't they follow the rest of the Disney bottle? They gave up and they said, "Listen, we're gonna be like Disney. We're gonna use the plus." I guess it's Paramount. Is it that uh, there? Is it that there's too many sort of like sub categories? Like Disney does have an advantage where like it really did just have six very easily identifiable sort of subcategories where it's like Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Simpsons, Net Geo. Like very easily identifiable. Like here's the six categories we have, whereas, you know, you have whatever all the Viacom properties. So yeah, you know, MTV, Comedy Central, VH1, what have you. Like, how do you discern what, what makes it what makes it up into that? But then you also have like their golf coverage. Then you also have. I, I do think there's something to like having Star Trek be their Star Wars. Like if you just said. Star Trek, MTV, Comedy, Comedy Central, Central, CBS, like CBS, and then you do PGA, PGA, or, you know. Um, well, that's that's what I mean. You pick you pick your brands, like right. you pick your buckets, you pick the things that you're excited about, and you want to make it very clear that this is going to be part of the service. So you say we have all of Star Trek, and that's huge. People will be like, "Holy shit, you've got Star Trek." Then you say, we've got live CBS coverage, we have live sports, we have live whatever it is. And you're like, okay, great, I can watch live TV just like 5 million people were doing at that exact moment. So they've already got people who are invested in in using it, and they touted how many people signed up for the service because of the Super Bowl or around the Super Bowl. So that's another part of it. And then you, you, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's, if if you, if it's MTV or Comedy Central because... One, I can see why they didn't do that because I'm guessing they don't have the rights to all of those things. Yeah. Like I'm guessing there's certain shows that they were already licensed to other platforms and they won't be on Paramount Plus immediately and eventually they'll be there, but they can't advertise that way. So pick your all-stars. Pick the stuff that you've got that you're excited about to say that's coming and just fucking lean in. Like the 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 death of streaming services these days has been a lack of clarity and a lack of 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 must see original series like those two things are still the biggest things like you have to either make something that people will put in the effort to figure out how to watch uh and uh you know make it clear what you're offering and they didn't do either of those things so i just it just seemed like such a waste and i like cbs all access (laughs) i like it a lot i think it's a great service it works beautifully like i i again i 
they're crashing, they got overwhelmed, but otherwise it, it's a very simple to use service. And I appreciate it. Speaking of CBS All Access 2.0, we were all able, one of the rare times we've been able to, watch the pilot for CBS's new crime drama based on existing YP, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the show is Clarice. Guys, why is the show bad? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll say, let's, let's open a different question. I sometimes forget that CBS has a sort of uh, vice-like grip on the on television viewers in Nielsen rating households. Uh, and I forget that there's a wider gamut of what is good and what is bad in terms of TV. Ben, where does Clarice show up across that spectrum? Wait, the spectrum of, of television or the spectrum of CBS? <laughs> <laughs> a spectrum of good to bad television. <laughs> In the spectrum of good to bad television, it's uh, it's very, very, very low, uh, very close to the bad end. Um, it has just... It's hard for me to talk about because it's not... The problems with it are very much fundamental problems that I feel like a younger demographic, uh, a younger generation the ones that typically do not watch CBS programming are always upset by in that it is heavily reliant on cliched story structure, familiar tropes, and predictable storytelling. Like it's, a, it's, it's not that it's episodic. It's not that it's a case of the week kind of show. It's, it's that they take a character who you know very well and turn her into a character that you know even better. It's like you knew her from The Silence of the Lambs and you liked that person, so that's why you're interested in this show in theory. But by the time the pilot's over, she is just any other female detective, cop, FBI agent, whatever, like stock character that you can imagine. And the fact that they purposefully did that with this IP to me makes it all the more insulting to the viewers like even even the ones who like this sort of thing even the ones who are tuning in week after week to watch cbs procedurals it's the idea that one they not to spoil anything but they take at the ending of the pilot even the beginning of the pilot they take the ending of the silence of the lambs and rejigger it in a way that makes clarice haunted by what happened instead of keeled and 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 inspired and, and like ready to take on the rest of her career they're like no 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 no, no. that's trauma and it's gonna fuck with her forever and it's like no no no, that wasn't the point like literally the title of the movie tells you what you need to know about the ending of the silence of the lambs so they they it's not that they misunderstand the character it's just that they purposefully reapply the lessons of another thing to this new thing in a way that it'll fit the expected narratives that the viewership supposedly has come to rely upon and to me that's what makes it very very bad um but at the same time i think it'll probably get good ratings libby counterpoint no counterpoint uh <laughs> supporting point like i think that's absolutely right they they change the spirit of what happened in the film they are so beholden to 
And it would be one thing if they wanted to mix up that narrative and explore trauma through Clarice, because obviously she's been through some shit, but they remain so locked into uh, Jonathan Demme's aesthetic on that film, um, you know, in a a very um, poor replication or or poor facsimile of what um, Demme accomplished in one of the best horror films of all time or thrillers or and like if you want to reimagine this character you have to let go of that aesthetic you have to you have to divorce yourself from it primarily because you also don't have the rights to Hannibal Lecter to the extent that you cannot say the name Hannibal Lecter, because the Thomas Harris intellectual property rights are a complete mess. So what Clarice has ownership of is Clarice Starling, the character, I believe Paul Krendler, the character, um, Clarice's friend from the Academy, I think her name is um, she, she's, Ardelia she's, Mapp. Is she the character played by Cassie Lemons in the, in the movie? Maybe. Let me see. Yeah, maybe. But then also... Um, they obviously have Buffalo Bill. They they have um, they have the 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 yeah the last survivor of of Buffalo Bill, yeah. the Martin, and um, yeah, Catherine Martin. So they have these things, but that's not they have these ancillary characters, but they have don't have the catalyst. And so, if you want to take Clarice Starling, then you have to, and you and you want to give her a different um, motivation in her narrative. In this case, it being specifically just the Buffalo Bill serial killings. Um, then you should free yourself from the trappings of what the film did. You need to have a hard divide uh, from it or else it's just, it's, it's just, it doesn't make any sense what you're doing. It's just a, a, a mishmash of, of differing things. And it's insulting, like Ben said, because it is such a poor representation, because it's such a, it's such a poor interpretation. And then also because it feels like it's trying to crib parts of other things, it feels much more lurid and, um, graphic uh, than we would typically see on CBS. Uh, there's a lot of exploration of wounds and um, a lot of nudity, a lot of dead women, because there's always dead women on a CBS procedural. Um, so it with, seems with like expertly, it's borrowing... With ex- expertly placed debris. No nipples. No nipples. <laughs> it's crazy how when you pull a body out of the river, all the leaves have congealed around uh, the, the breasts and then the downstairs mix up. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, they, all of these rivers are in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Um, they were all drawn by Rene- Renaissance yeah. Uh, so. painters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tasteful placement of hands. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, um, so it, it, it feels like it borrows from Hannibal, NBC's Hannibal, which we talk about a lot on this podcast because it was so different from uh, everything else on network television. And still, as we are exploring the works of Thomas Harris again, still stands out head and, head and shoulders above um, other interpretations of, of those stories. It's just, it's just a pale imitation of 
things you've loved before, appreciated before. Also, if I may, it begins in the relative aftermath of the Buffalo Bill serial, serial killings. I think it's set in, what, 1994, 1995? It's a year later. You would not know that from watching this. There's nothing that grounds this in, in, a, in being a year later. Uh, the cars are one thing that might. Um, fashion doesn't. Nothing does. The only reason it's taking place in that is because they want to pick up from that story. It'd be one thing if they wanted to take Clarice Starling and re-examine the character further down in her career and seeing how dedicating herself to researching serial killers has changed her as a person, if it's changed her as a person. Um, which is, again, probably going to get into Hannibal territory, but because the center is a woman, then it is is different enough that that you might be able to find something there. But this is just every CBS procedural. You know, she's the only woman surrounded by men. Um, all the all the all the people killed are women. All the people attacked are women. Clarice is a very special woman, um, and she saves all the girls. Uh, and and because she's a woman, she knows to look in like a maxi pad box for a clue oh yeah um, infuriating it's just it's just a messy show it's a it's it it's an unoriginal show um not surprising when you're dealing with intellectual property but they are trying to serve too many masters while also being completely unoriginal and um i hate it and do you know what the most egregious thing of setting it in the mid-1990s is they use it as an excuse to be pedantic they have uh, oh. one character describe another, uh, describe their child or describe another character as autistic. And they were like, do you know what that means? Um, and it's like, right now, it's 2021. We all know what autism is. We know um, what a lot of the, the earmarks for autism, what to expect when sometimes dealing with someone on the autism spectrum. But like, oh, in the mid-1990s, no one would know what autistic is, and we wouldn't name it, and so now we get to say the words, and we can see that someone understands, and it's just, um, I don't want excuses for your pedantry. Um, move on. Like, 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 it, 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 it <laughs> that was when I was like, oh, that's what they're doing. They are, they are giving themselves a shortcut to uh lay on this lay all this exposition on us um i was not happy i was not happy at all and i wasn't happy by like the buffalo bill flashbacks like how <sighs> hannibal's not a perfect series <laughs> but it used its it used its uh violence and its um sort of macabre uh, indulgence to a point, like towards, they, it had artistic intent. And in Clarice, the violence is just violence. It's just seeing someone sewing human skin. Like, that, like that's just it. Um, and there is something, I think, in Hannibal, you would often see the, the end of, of violence. And there's something about actively sewing a, a human suit that is um, somehow much more upsetting than most of the things I ever saw in Hannibal. And, and 
despite the Hannibal things being exponentially more haunting. Well, there's an, there's also know. like an artistic element to a lot of the violence in Hannibal and a lot of the, right. the graphic Im- imagery in Hannibal. Uh, something you mentioned that like I, I got me thinking that like there's something to I we we reference Watchmen as like an excellent adaptation of pre-existing IP. Uh, when I say Watchmen, I mean Damon Lindelof's Watchmen series. Series, but you have Zack Snyder's Watchmen. It is trying to be so true to its the source material that it loses any and all personality. Right. And here you have something that's neither of those things it is not Zack Snyder's Watchmen it is not Damon Lindelof's Watchmen it is like a poor Xerox of Silence of the Lambs uh where you mistakenly mixed it in with an, with another book or some or something else it, it it is getting so many things wrong it is not accurate to the original source material and it's not original in its own in its own way that it's handling it like it's whiffing on both fronts it legitimately feels like a like a play to maintain the rights to this intellectual property, um, which is the most cynical way to, to look at it. Um, but this is a, a great way to make sure that the Dino De Laurentiis company does not get uh, its hands in the Clarice Starling property and uh, unite the sort of Thomas Harris Hannibal family, uh, which is upsetting. And probably upsetting for Hannibal fans that were really hoping that they would get to Clarice in season four. Uh, Sorry, suckers. Um, Well, I'll say it's rare. It's rare that we get an answer to YP. There's an answer. There is there. I mean, theoretically, there is theoretically they they believed in this project. But in actuality, I I find it's upsetting to think that. Um, I don't know. It's not a good show, and I didn't like it, and this is why I'm not a TV critic, because I really prefer watching stuff that is, like, theoretically awards contenders, and this ain't it. I think so often of a, of a, college, uh, of a college friend of mine who moved to L.A. to become a screenwriter and wrote this horror movie, uh, and then someone optioned it, bought it, and they made it, and they turned it into a Cell sequel. It was The Cell 2. It's like they didn't change almost anything. They just made it a The Cell sequel. And it's like this is like someone wrote a procedural drama and they're like, let's make it Clarice. We can understand the business side of it. But I I do think that considering how successful Hannibal was from an artistic standpoint, the the NBC series, and considering there is a fan base who's interested in, in these stories, these Thomas Harris characters, I do think it's important to kind of have the discussion that we just had in terms of why doesn't this work? Like, it's more than just CBS CBS did. Like it's more than just like we took the I like took the names and put it on a different property. There's also like a, a fundamental problem with extending Clarice's story in a in a similar fashion to what they did with Hannibal. Well, they've taken a, they've taken what was always kind of a, a passive character and then stripped her of the agency that she had gained. By but by the by the end of Silence of the Lambs, it's very um, it just it doesn't make sense. They have they have they've robbed themselves of any kind of momentum or or naturally or naturally occurring uh, story progress. Um, it's just 
and I think Leo and I both remarkable. We were watching it. It's just very dull. Yeah, that's um, that's its greatest sin is how boring it is. Because like, if it was a if it was a fun procedural, I would watch. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation, NDYR, theme music feature, excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork talking about our TV, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brideson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Our favorite actors to play a character created by Thomas Harris include Mads Mikkelsen, Lawrence Fishburne, and Brian Cox. Millions of Screens endorses Jillian Anderson. You can find us on Twitter at Million Screens at Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Agent Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, so leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you as always, they shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>